Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Down the blind, Andrew John. Inside for Elba. Elba will score. Elba will score. Newcastle and one. G'day guys, welcome back to the Rugby League Guru Podcast. You might have seen yesterday the Queensland Cup Grand Final, the Norse Devils winning their first comp since 1998. Sensational stuff. And if you've been a long-time listener to the podcast, you'll remember about 18 months ago we had Rowan Smith on, who of course is the head coach of the Norse Devils. Champion fella, he's obviously the son of the great Brian Smith, uh, one of the premier coaches Rugby League has ever seen. And we had him on 18 months ago and I thought, you know what, I might cut up a bit of the content uh, from that interview where we spoke about the Norse Devils and the direction they're heading and whatnot because I remember being very impressed. It didn't, you know, as you would have seen on my Instagram post last night, it didn't shock me in the slightest that Rowan Smith got coach of the year and then his team won the Intrust Super Cup. No surprises whatsoever. He's a champion bloke, really good at what he does and I started to cut it up a little bit and then I kept listening to the rest of the podcast and I just took out the Norse Devils stuff. Then I listened to the rest of it and to be honest with you, as weird as it is listening to yourself talk, I ended up listening to the entire hour. Now, I listen back to very, very few of my podcasts. I might listen back to an interview occasionally uh, to get a vibe on how it went or where I need to edit or whatever. But outside of that, I will not listen back to any of my content. And I sat through essentially an hour and a half of this with him. A great chat. If you're a true footy head, if you're missing your rugby league too, this is fantastic. We go through a range of topics. We talk about the Norse Devils, obviously. We talk about his coaching career. He went all over the place. Yeah, he's been in a heap of systems, Roosters, Warriors, Penrith, Gold Coast Titans. He's been all over the place over the last 20 years. So also been over to England twice to coach over there in some very strange situations over there. Oh, he obviously talks about his childhood growing up with Brian Smith. Now, Brian Smith, his old man, you know, unfortunately, Brian Smith is well known for losing grand finals. He lost a heap. Off the top of my head, we're talking 92-93, lost with the Dragons against Wayne Bennett's Broncos. Uh, he then lost in 2001. Of course, that Parramatta Eels team, I always say that they're the best team to never win a competition. 2010, he loses to Wayne Bennett once again. This time, Bennett is coaching the Dragons, and uh, Brian Smith was coaching the Roosters in that one. So, it's funny, you get to so many grand finals, yet people 
seemingly only remember that you don't win games. It's amazing how how we just overlook how hard it is to make grand finals and how often Brian Smith did it. An incredible effort. Touch on Brian Smith. We also touch on a heap of guys that since having this conversation, they've actually gone on to do pretty good things. Sean O'Sullivan's one of them. We've both been huge fans of Sean O'Sullivan. He's had a couple of injuries. And we mentioned in that that if he does get an opportunity, he will make it count. He got his shot at the Warriors this year, and I think they won four from six or five from six or something while Sean, Sull- Sean O'Sullivan was playing halfback. So a little tick to us there. We also spoke about Lachlan Coot. I, I, there's a moment in here where I asked Rowan about a kid that he saw when he was a young gun that he just knew straight away this guy was going to be a winner. Now, Lachlan Coot, 24 hours ago, I think he won his fourth grand final in six years, which is an incredible effort over there in England, obviously starting back with the North Queensland Cowboys in 2015. We also touch on Bryce Carr. We talk about him as a young bloke. Uh, Rowan was lucky enough to coach, coach Bryce Carr right when he was young. So a couple of insights there are sensational. And just the insights around coaching in this interview are fantastic. I honestly do think Rowan will be back in a first grade job eventually. I'm not sure when it'll be. I'm not sure if he still wants to or not, but if he does, I think there should be a lot of systems lining up to get this guy into their building. I'll hand you over now. This is a long one, no doubt about it, but I think you'll really enjoy it. I'll hand it over now to Rowan Smith. I imagine it's been a pretty chaotic few months for you as it has for everyone else. How has it affected you as a head coach? Yeah, it's been it's been diff- difficult. Uh, you know, the competition got cancelled after after round one. Not even sort of put on hold, but after round one, we you know we had a really positive preseason on the back of you know a couple of positive seasons moving forward as a club. Uh, There's a good vibe around the place and good energy and a you know a good sprinkling of Broncos kids that were going to be around the place that um, sort of were on the way up. Um, There's a good good vibe. Got shut down pretty quickly, uh, which that was probably the hardest part for a lot of the, the boys to, to swallow is like, well, why is everything else on hold and we're, we're out of it? But uh, it's, been, it's been really good. It's been a good test of, um, you know, what, what's our environment, our culture really like. And the majority of our players have continued to train. And as soon as, the, you know, we were op- able to open the gym up, like we've had 20, 25 dudes like training all the time in, in the hope of some footy being on and, and now a bunch of those guys are playing in the Brisbane Rugby League, which is it's great to have that up and running. So um, a bunch of our younger players are getting some experience playing playing good hard footy in the Brisbane Rugby League. So yeah, that's kind of where we're at at the moment. We're still still training, and uh, those that are yeah wanting to work on their footy are, are in here working on their footy three or four days a week. Mate, tell me about the landscape of the Devils over the last you know ten or fifteen years. You know, I, I never remember the. The, the Devils being a team like the Redcliffe Dolphins, which is, you know, where players want to be. And you've really started to change that culture. I mean, I remember growing up and the only thing you'd ever hear about the North Devils is when they dig out that picture of Smith, Slater and Cronk, you know, sitting there and that's all you'd hear from them. But the culture's really changed a lot over the last few years. Yeah, it's got, it's got a super rich uh, tradition and history. And um, through the 60s, there was a whole bunch of competitions, one back to back and, uh, it's it's twenty you know twenty plus years since the the Devils have, have held the trophy up now, but uh, I mean you know what tradition and history is, is a fantastic thing, but it's always as a coach you you're trying to create the next tradition and and history um, while respecting and, and crediting the people that have come before us and, and trying to represent those guys um, in a in a strong fashion. So we've done things yeah differently. I, I don't really 
you know, when you get a job as a coach, it's it's quite often because things aren't the way that, you know, the administrators of the club want them to be for, for whatever reason. Sometimes it's just um, the previous regime has run its course or, you know, whatever the cause is that we, we get a job, uh, places are looking for a change. And, um, you know, I think I probably can provide a fair bit of change, uh, see things through a different lens to, to a lot of coaches. So um, it's been really really pleasing um, to be part of a, a staff now. Like we started here, I got the job. There was there was no CEO in place for the um, the coming year. He got the job just after me. And then, you know, now we're, we've got a staff of six sort of full-time people. It's It's been great to see the club evolve. And we've had, had some good successes of, of players progress, not just into the NRL, but we've had 12 or 14 sort of young kids in our, 18s and 20s programs go on to play, you know, SG ball or Jersey flag in, in Sydney under the NRL banners. So, you know, there's been a lot of positive things to, to take place around the club and it's been a real a community, club community effort to, to drive it forward, which has been, yeah, it's been fun. If I'm a kid coming from country Queensland and I arrive at the Devils, you know, not knowing much about the history of the club, is that all part of the experience? Are you taught about the history and where the club's come from and where you see it going in the future? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting one because you know I'm not a huge um, history buff. I'm not, you know, I, I feel quite uh, uneducated in a lot of senses as far as you know world history goes and stuff. I didn't really learn much about that at school and haven't haven't chased it myself. So it's a balance between you know young kids want to know what's going on right now and and where they're headed. Um, but we definitely pay tribute to that. We when I first got the job, we gave every player that we we signed, we gave them a um, Norse Devils book, you know, and it's it's got the history of the book, 85 years, I think, of history um, in the book. And a lot of guys, you know, they flick through it and go, wow, like, you know, um, we don't expect everyone to know every fact, but it's it's definitely part of it. We, we pay tribute to the people that came before us. Um, you know, we, we reference those that are Devils legends and uh, I understand that it's about past, present and future all the time. It's not about, not about us. We're always part of something something bigger um, but it's a, it's an interesting one that stuff like I've been in NRL clubs where you know there was a couple of guys at the Roosters that didn't know who Brad Fittler was Jesus you know? Christ that's <laughs> grim far what, out what are we dealing with here you know let alone before we go back to to other legends of the club you know Brad Fittler was the coach two years ago what are you talking about you know um, so it's it's an interesting balance between the present and the future but also referencing the the past is something that we're, we're big on here at the Devils Mate, you mentioned the Roosters there. They're one of, you know, five or six NRL systems that I've got on a list in front of me you've been involved with. But before we get to that, take me back to your childhood. Obviously, you grew up with a very unique experience in rugby league. Uh, For those that haven't clued on yet, you're obviously the son of Brian Smith. And, you know, Brian Smith, he's achieved so much in the game. And I feel like his reputation has, you know, to some extent been tarnished simply because he hasn't lifted a trophy at the end of the year. But... Mate, he has achieved so like he's achieved more than what most coaches dream of in reality, and he sort of cops the rough end of a stick. Growing up for you, what was that experience like? Yeah, it probably wasn't until I was a teenager or started coaching, maybe you know, in my early twenties, that I sort of reflected on that stuff. It was always just that's how it was. Like you follow your parents around when you're you're a kid, and we had the the opportunity to go to go to England a couple of times. Um, 
Yeah, I, I don't know. It's obviously had a big impact on on both myself and you know my brother's a coach as well, and obviously my uncle Tony is a coach. So there's there's something in the in the experience of just being around it that sort of drove drives you drives you into it. And and listening to your chat with Fitzy uh, the other week, you know it. Fitzy being around it from day one as well. It's kind of inevitable that he's a chance of being around it for the rest of his days too. Um, obviously he had such a prolific playing career um, in between, you know, being a kid around the dressing rooms and, and being a coach himself. But for me, for me, I kind of went down the path. I was 16 and I thought, you know, I'm pretty keen to coach. Like even when I was out in the field, I was more interested in trying to help my mates to be good at their footy than, than probably spending the time on myself. Um, yeah, the experience of being around it, like I was in the dressing room, but I was always thinking about footy. I wasn't just sort of being a fan. You know, I was a ball boy at St. George for a few years, and I was, all, you know, Liam, Liam Reddy and I would be walking along the sideline, and uh, Rocket's young fella is, a, you know, he went down the soccer path, but we'd be breaking down the game while we're ball boy and not sort of looking at the crowd or waiting for our, our pie and can of Coke. You know, at the end of the day, it was... Um, I guess that analytical side of things and, and really trying to work out how and why things are happening was just sort of infiltrated into us um, by being around it so much. It's it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to nail it right down, but, uh, you know, I, I thank I thank my upbringing and my, and my dad for, for exposing me to that sort of the lessons that team sport and the, the dressing room can, can teach you about, you know, how to behave and, respect each other and how to work together and all that kind of stuff is probably um and, and the work ethic that that went into it my dad you know is a prolific worker uh, probably a, a pioneer in in a lot of coaching in australia as far as the the time and effort and you know the study trips to the to the states and to the europe and stuff like he was he's kind of ahead of the game in a lot of those senses so it's been fortunate to to be around that you mentioned the uh, Craig Fitzgibbon podcast earlier, mate, and geez, like rugby league, it's such a small world. When I was, you know, doing a bit of research on Brian and yourself, like when I spoke to Craig Fitzgibbon, he said his dad got his first coaching gig in ni- in first grade in 1982 with the Steelers. He then lost the job, and your dad took over from him in his first coaching gig. And you know, now both of you have gone into coaching yourself. It's you know, it's it's such a small world, isn't it? Yeah, well, he's from you know, I grew up mostly in Wollongong, and and Fitzy's grew up down the road and you know i used to watch him from the from the hill um you know as and then i you know we shared an office for for a year it's kind of um sport in general is is just such a way of connecting people and you never know like how you're going to cross paths or what kind of history is is so similar um when you meet people you feel like you've known them for a long time because you've followed a, a similar path and a lot of it um you know like like-minded experiences and stuff um, yeah, Fitzy, Fitzy was a great influence for me uh, for that for that year. He was he, he was his first year out of playing, and he was transitioning, you know, from that playing mindset to coaching mindset. And it was it was clear right from the start that he was going to be very good at it. Um, but he also understood that what players went through. So he, he's he's perfectly balanced to uh, to take that that big job when he wants to. Mate, obviously with your dad, you know, 92, 93, 2001, 2010, all grand finals he was in, in that, that he didn't come home with the chocolates. And, you know, he's copped plenty for it. We spoke about it earlier. What effect did that have on your family behind closed doors? 
Uh, yeah, it did. It had a massive effect, probably on my on my mum mostly. Um, my my sister's a bit. She's eight nine years younger than me, but and it probably probably a little bit for her. And, and my brother, my brother's one of the uh, toughest, most resilient people um, I know. But it probably impacted him a little more. Um, I used to sometimes defend that. You know, the, we used to have school teachers. You know, when we were kids, like school teachers would be sort of firing off. Um, a bit of chat, you know, around the result of the weekend. And, you know, all my mates at school, they would toss it up sometimes, but they were always like, oh, how cool is that? You, you know, your dad's footy coach and you're at the footy every weekend. Like, that's – they weren't really putting too much crap on us. But, um, yeah, you, you did. And we grew up in Wollongong, so it was, you know, Dragon Steelers territory and dad was coaching Parramatta for 10 years um, or he was coaching St. George when Illawarra still existed. So there was that, that sort of rivalry. Um, I felt like it was – it was resilience building in some ways about you know what to what battles to fight and just you know that other people's opinions just really um, really don't matter. So that's probably helped put me in decent position uh, to to be a coach as well because I just don't look outside too much. Uh, but it, it definitely yeah impacted the the family unit. It put a lot of stress on at home and um, yeah it wasn't easy to have people you know talking negatively like it, di- it didn't so much didn't really bother me too much um but at the same time it wasn't something that you wanted to see and i think it, you know in australia it's the coaching trade is probably not respected as it is like in the states you know a learner of coaches because particularly uh i didn't have that playing background so i've spent a lot of time like studying the great coaches and you know dudes like george carl like fifth fifth most winningest coach in NBA history, you know, Jerry Sloan passed away not too long ago, never won a title, but like those guys, those guys are revered, you know, they're, they've got huge, huge respect for the way that they play the game and, and the results that they get as well that, you know, only one team can win each year. Uh, Marty Schottenheimer, another like legend of NFL coaching, never won. But over, you know, over there, they pay the respect to those guys regardless of, you know, being able to turn a poor team into a, a good team, that's a, that's a coach, coaching success, I think. You know, maybe a lot of coaches in the NRL probably go wrong and clubs go wrong because they think they're going to win the comp every year, but they're actually not set up to win the comp just yet. Mm. They put a lot of unnecessary pressure on themselves to, to chase the wrong goal, in my opinion. Mate, obviously, you know, to your dad's credit, you know, the 92-93 grand final year came up against essentially a Kangaroos side dressed in a Broncos kit. He then got to 2010, and you came up against that Wayne Bennett-led St. George Illawarra side that, you know, they were just robotic. It was going to take one hell of an effort to beat them. But for me, I would imagine 2001 hits a little bit different. In my opinion, that Parramatta Eels side, that's the best team to never win a premiership, and I'll be shocked if there's a better team that doesn't win a premiership in the future. I imagine that one must sting dad still a little bit. Yeah, I'd, I'd imagine. Yeah, I definitely know that that one does. Um, yeah, the 92 one was great for St. George to be there. Um, 93, probably were in a position to maybe win that one uh, based on just how they were playing as a team. Uh, 2001, that team was dynamite. Like, that, that was a team. That wasn't just individual stars. That was epic team footy, both sides of the ball. Um, you know, attack complemented defense, defense complemented attack, good kicking game, good goal kicking. 
you know, good good range of youth and experience. Um, that one disappointing for sure. Um, but there's so many ways to measure success as a, as a coach and in an organisation that, um, whilst that was disappointing, you know, the the Parramatta tenure, I guess, was a huge success um, as a as a whole. And 2010 was an interesting one. That was a bounce back year after the Roosters had. You know, I had a pretty poor 2009, 2010. There was a fresh energy and a fresh vibe and we played a decent style of footy. Uh, the back end of the year, our defence um, really, under under Robbo's sort of tutelage there, it, it, um, it got pretty resilient, pretty strong. A um, couple of things went against us in that grand final and, um, yeah, we, we won't manage to, to, to get that one. But as you said, it was a pretty strong veteran uh, Broncos team that, uh, Dragons team, sorry that they got the got the chocolates that day, but yeah, I think that 2001 one, yeah, that was that was tough. I remember that as a as a 20 year old kid, like that was um, that was that was that was tough. But also, you know, talking to my uncle a fair bit in the last few years and spending a bit of time in the UK with Tony, like you know, he's he's lost he's lost a lot of big games over there as well. But you know, if you want to be able to win big, you've got to be able to risk big. You know, you've got to be able to accept that defeat that it's just it's part of it like there's there's very few coaches that get the opportunity to just be there there's even fewer that get to be there and win all the time um so it's you know you're not on your own if you haven't won a comp that's for sure without a doubt mate and you know i, I sat through this whole covid period where there was no footy on and fox sports every radio station was to who's the best player who's the best team who's the best team to win a comp and i just sat there thinking fuck if Matt Johns was an only child and Andrew didn't exist, where would that 2001 team sit if they would have won that grand final? Because they were just on another level. Like, I remember days where your old man would take blokes off and let them play with 12 and, like, unheard of stuff, but they were just playing such good footy and he got the best out of, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of guys that were journeymen in rugby league, you know, like, I remember Brad Drew, he just went to another level that year. He was incredible. Brady Hodgson... It, yeah, it's just it's a crazy season how, how that one finished. Yeah, it was the, I guess it was the sort of the culmination of building there from '97 through to to that period where there was a sort of um, evolution of the club and so many you know brilliant young players. Like I used to love going to watch Harold Matthews and, and SG Ball and have. Um, my dad and the other coaches sort of pointing out the kids that are coming through, and I'm like, "Yeah, you don't need to point them out. I can see like those guys are <laughs> superstars, all in the same team, and they were playing good team footy at a at a young age, so they knew how to play sort of team footy, uh, and that that's what I remember of that 2001 um, footy that it was it was really team orientated. It wasn't dependent on you know a star or two stars. It was the impact that each other had the other that made people great and then some guys got accolades of if you've playing rep footy and stuff but it was really a culmination of the great team performance was seeing individual accolades i think that year more than you know the the, the other way around mate you mentioned when you were playing footy that you know you weren't as focused on your own football you were sort of more focused on helping the blokes around you to some extent and you know to me that's got coach written all over it but when you were playing what sort of a footballer were you what position were you playing well i mostly played 5-8 as a as a kid growing up um when i got to sort of men's footy playing down in Wollongong for for collies i played wherever they told me to play played a couple of games in 
uh, first grade on the wing, and I was like, ah, oh, no, not that keen on that. But um, no, yeah, I, was, I sort of understood the game pretty well, so I could slide in wherever. Um, but I like, you know, I like calling the shots and like pointing people around, and had a uh, had a good kicking game. I spent a lot of time um, from a, from a young age. Uh, Dave Allred, the he's a guru kicking coach um, from from the UK. He he came out to St George actually when Dad was coaching there and being taught by some of the guys that he taught how to kick. Uh, kicking was a big part of big part of my game and I was quite quite good at that. But um, yeah, I didn't have the dedication to to train hard um, to to see how where I could push myself to. But uh, part of the reason there, I guess, I was always you know driven towards coaching. I was reading coaching autobiographies and books as a, as a teenager, instead of reading the, you know, the HSC texts, I was reading, you know, about coaches or players um, from great sports teams. When you were younger and obviously the dream of playing first grade was still there to some extent, who were the guys in first grade that, that you watched and you appreciated the way that they ball played? I probably Laurie Daly was the one um, I, I used to, used to love, that was, that was probably the first player I can remember thinking like, wow. I mean, there's hit, there was other guys, but I used to watch that 89 grand final. It was like a morning ritual at my house. So seeing like guys, you know, I'd get up straight out of bed, press play, you know, and then when I had to go to school or get ready for school or whatever, I'd press stop and just resume it the next morning. And then when it finished, I'd start it again. Um, so any of the guys in those two teams, like I kind of respected because of what a contest that was. And I remember thinking like that, even as a kid watching that, just thinking, wow, what a contest, um, the ebb and flow and who was going to win and, and whatever. But yeah, in the sort of through my teenage years or, uh, yeah, Laurie Daly and Brad Phil were, they were the other ones that I, yeah, respected the most because they, I guess, because they ran the ball hard. You know, they were great running players as well as having having the skill. They were real all round footballers, weren't they? Yeah, I, I like that aspect of not just footy and, but you know, in life, trying to be well rounded, um, being able to have more than one trick, and in footy context, being able to play different ways. Like those guys could create opportunity through carry, pass, kick. Um, where I think a lot of young players sort of aren't encouraged to do that so much anymore. Who are the halves playing in the game now that, you know, you might be sitting there on Friday night watching them play and they'll do something and you'll ring your half back and say, fuck, did you see what he do? What, what, what happened then? And how, how he addressed that situation? Who are those guys in the modern game? Yeah, that, that happens all the time, by the way. The, uh, yeah, I'm not shocked. <laughs> um. Yeah, with a couple of guys I've got here, Jack O'Hearn and, and Bryce Bryce Donovan, a young kid, Harry Freeban, they're always on the on the text. But um, and you know, Sean O'Sullivan, I've, I've got a close relationship with the Bronx. Like we, you know, that that can happen pretty often. Um, I, there's, there's lots of guys, and I can respect how they play the game um, in in different contexts. Like I still love watching Mitchell Pierce play. Like I spent some you know a couple of years with him and, and got to know him quite well. And I think that guy has probably the most all-round great skills like doesn't maybe always um, come through in every performance like he's, he's had some certain you know massive purple patches but the ability to like rip a long ball both ways to kick to run to tackle to compete you know we used to use um, some footage of Mitchell like when he was 17 that was you know just getting into first grade we used to use it as 
Um, like this is how to compete as a halfback. We used to use that when we were at the Knights and the Roosters. Um, to other younger players, I think uh, I always respected, you know, what, what he's done in the game. Um, I love watching Mitchell Mitchell Moses. You know, I think he has a that all-round skill set. He's fast. Uh, Luke Keary, he's a, he's a player. He's a player. I he's mean, there's, yeah, you know, seeing the the evolution of, of Nathan Cleary as well has been been cool. Like I love Cherry Evans. You know, I really I was at the Titans when he when he'd agreed to the Titans, and I was you know I was that excited to just get up close and see how and why he does things how he does because he's a bit unorthodox but so highly skilled and and coming out of that Manly program. Uh, with the you know Jamie Lyon and the Stewart boys and Steve Maddai and blokes with you know real footy high footy IQ, um, you know that would have been a, a great experience as a coach. But I mean I I I'll watch you know I watch every game I love watching every game and I watch the individuals. But um, yeah, not just not just the halves. I think the underestimated part about footy and under coach bit is that the halves you know have to be seen to be the smart guys all the time. Where like I love. I loved watching Jamie Lyon play. Like he was, you know, just one of the smartest footy players, most aware footy players. But you know, played right centre pretty much his whole career. Uh, I like that aspect of footy as well. Like working out who the influential characters are outside of the, you know, the spine unit. Mate, the way that Jamie Lyon played, like. I'd almost want to say he revolutionised the centre position because he was like a second 5'8". But the reality is no one could replicate what Jamie Lyon was able to do. He, he was just different, wasn't he? Yeah, just fantastic instincts and awareness. Um, he could read the read the scenario, he could create, he could prevent, he could just manage the clock, you know, he could just take a load off. But, you know, that, that kicking game on that side of the field, like I think that's an under under-practiced and underutilized aspect of the game where you know, they're much easier, those kicks, for centers to do than when the halfback's got three blokes sprinting at him and, you know, all sorts of pressure. Give it to your center and he's got that running thread or he can kick it. Like, it's, um, yeah, it was just... I remember watching him play SG Ball at Parramatta and, you know, that was he was a special, special character um, at that level and then just kept going through the grades in that same year. I think he played SG Ball and, and NRL in the same year. Um, maybe not. I think so. Uh, but he didn't need many Reggie's games, or he didn't need much underneath to get him ready to be a superstar. And he just did that his whole career. It was unbelievable, mate. I believe your old man was coaching him the day that he just went back to the country. Do Do you remember that day? Um, I don't remember. Like, and I don't actually. I don't know if I ever actually asked what you know what what actually happened, other than yeah, I'm out of here. Um. So I don't, yeah, I don't know the, the ins and outs of that story or how it, how it came about. I, I probably probably should ask. Might be an interesting one or it might be a tender one. I'm not sure. Mate, uh, there was a guy that you mentioned a few minutes ago, um, Sean O'Sullivan. You've obviously had a lot to do with him. And for me, you know, I know he's coming off an injury, but if he isn't the best halfback not playing first grade, I'll give it away. I think he is a sensational ball player. And like Tommy did, and he's a really good young footballer, but... When I watch Sean O'Sullivan, he's just got something a little bit extra about him, doesn't he? Oh man, he's even before you watch him on the field, his his football IQ and his knowledge of the game and awareness is, um, you know, it'd be unparalleled for someone his age. Um, but you know, when you put it in context, that kid's been watching footy and been around footy 
um, with his old man, just, you know, similar situation to, to myself. Like I met Sean when I was at the, the Roosters and he was only a kid, you know, a young kid. Uh, and we would have footy conversations and I'm like, yeah, this is like what I was as a 12 year old. <laughs> that's, that's how, it, you know, reminds me of my own upbringing a bit. And Sully's got great awareness of the game and he knows how to bring other people into the game and he, he plays straight, you know, he, he plays straight and he plays short inside out. Um, he gets criticized and, you know, a lot of things have held him back in his career because he's had a couple of knee recos and he's, he's got no speed, but what he has got is speed between the ears um, like very few others. And I think he, at the right time, he's going to make a, a club he's going to do a good job for a club and whether he can end up being a you know every week first grader is probably you know he needs to get some some footy under his belt and uh, make sure his body holds up but it won't be because if he's um you know his skill set or his his awareness of the game and he's a good team team player um yeah you know, I, I don't know if the time's right like i haven't been able to see him train during the uh you know the nrl bubble i'm normally in at Broncos training quite often and, and seeing how things are going. But um, under the current rules, you know, I, I don't know exactly where he's at, but I know he's very, very close to being cleared to play. So, um, you know, I'd love to see him out there. He's, um, yeah, he's a super talented guy and, you know, Blake's love playing with him because he's, he's a talker. He's an old school halfback that needs to be, you know, on the ball and, and dictating and running the show. And, and he he's, he's great at that. And we've, you know, we're lucky enough to have him for, 15 or so games last year at Norse, and he, he did a great job. Yeah, he's one guy that I really like, and, I God, I hope his opportunity comes along soon. Mate, take me back to the start of your coaching career. Um, you told me before that you volunteered at the Warriors in the early 2000s. Tell me about that. Yeah, I, I was still at uni. Um, I was teaching teaching swimming. That was actually my first coaching job, is teaching swimming to, like, four- to six-year-olds, um, teaching them how to sort of get 10 metres uh, with their freestyle and get comfortable on their back doing backstroke. Um, Jeez, you uh, you learnt patience early, my God. Oh, I'd have five or six of them at a time and mum and dad are saying, you know, can you make sure you're really hard on them and whatnot? I'm like, meanwhile, before the class started, they're climbing trees and, you know, throwing rocks and carrying on <laughs> and then they come to swimming. But it was it was a great experience and I think it, it actually helped uh, teach me that, that patience and awareness of how to deal with different kids because um, we're dealing with different people um, in every situation. So that was my first gig. Uh, but my last two years of uni, I was uh, – and uh, Daniel Anderson got the job over there at the Warriors and I don't know exactly how it came about, but um, he asked me just to do some bit of um, sort of scouting work, check out the opposition individuals and, and come up with a little bit of a breakdown. Um, so I used to do that on the weekend and send it through on a Monday morning and did that. Spent a lot of time watching footy on video those two years. Got the real appetite for it, and then a, a role sort of was created at the at the Warriors, which I saw. You know, in reflection, it was like a hardcore apprenticeship of of coaching, where I was in the video room, like many of the um, the great American coaches. You know, started chopping up video, uh, breaking down film and stuff for the for the coaches to use. I was doing a lot of that stuff and, and just being exposed to, to the detail and the um, strategy that Endo would, you know, he, he had such an impact on that club. Um, he's, he's an eye for detail and attention to detail in teaching skills. He's, um, 
know, probably unlike any other I've come across, um, you know, in my time. Mate, after the Warriors gig, you uh, you make your way over to England for the first time with the London Broncos. Tell me about that experience. Yeah, that was cool. They uh, they, were, they were struggling a little bit, and um, Tony Ray was looking for an assistant coach. And when I went home um, from the from the Warriors, not too long after after Daniel got sacked, I I went back to Australia as well, and was sort of just starting to plan ahead for maybe what might happen in two thousand and five. This was halfway through two thousand and four. Made a call to my uncle, said I'd love to come to England if anything ever opens up over there, you know, with him or with someone else. Like, you, you know, can you keep me in the loop? And and he said, oh, actually, I'll, I'll line you up with Tony Ray, have a chat. We had a chat. Um, Tony was on the tube in London. So, you know, it's it's renowned for signal coming in and out. So we had a, a phone call over three or four, you know, dropouts and <laughs> it was a positive call. And then he called me back the next day and we sort of took the next next steps there they had a really um experienced team in 2004 but weren't sort of performing how they wanted to be and we're in a little bit of relegation risk um i think they were on six points when i went over and castleford might have been below them on two or somebody somebody was on two points so it's like with 12 or 13 rounds to go it was a bit uh a bit sketchy uh jim dimmick was was great for me and dennis moran like uh experienced guys that they they knew me as a kid um, at, at Parramatta when they were playing there. Um, but those guys were, were super, a little bit intimidating for me as a 23-year-old coach. Um, those guys had obviously been coached by great players and had great experience, but they were really good at helping um, integrate me into the, the program halfway through that season. They had a lot of other experienced players sort of coming towards the back end. Played some decent footy, escaped relegation. Uh, and then 2005 was a super exciting time. Like we, we had a lot of new players. Um, I had a big opportunity to help that recruitment process, um, which was fantastic. And we, we had a really good 2005 season, made the playoffs and um, sort of put, put the Broncos on the map there for, for a little bit. It was uh, a great life experience as well. I love my live music. So there was a chance to, uh, to see a band pretty much every other day uh, in London. So that was a that was a great time, mate. You mentioned Jim Dimmick there, and you know he's a sort of guy that he hasn't. He's sort of stayed out of the limelight since he finished playing. But for me, he's one of the most underrated footballers we've ever seen. You know, for younger viewers or for younger listeners that are listening in that don't remember Jimmy, tell us about him as a footballer. Yeah, well, I saw him obviously playing for the Bulldogs, and then when uh, when Dad got the job at Para, uh, both he and Jason Smith were. Signed to, to play at Para and probably, you know, quite similar in a lot of ways. Uh, so the way that Parramatta played in that period of time was unlike um, a lot of other sort of standard ways of playing. Though Both those guys were five eights or forwards or whatever you wanted. You know, they were edge-back rowers. They were just genuine They were footballers, so, yep. So, you know, Johnny Simon was kind of running the show a bit and then those guys – well, what the problem was with both of those in the same team, you probably needed two balls because they both won the ball all the time, um, could create with their skill, footwork, you know, just genuine willingness to run through and over people as well. Um, both tough players. Uh, yeah, two of my favourite players of, of all time, those guys. Um, and Jimmy, you know, got a great mind for the game. I've, I've never spent any time with Jason Smith, but, uh, yeah, Jimmy, Jimmy Dimmick, a, a great mind for the game. Um, so I'm, you know, got no doubts that he's a, 
he's passing that on uh, to, to plenty of new players as well. I imagine our uh, Jason Smith must have kept your dad awake some Saturday nights. <laughs> I'd imagine so. I'd imagine so. But far out, what a player! I remember one day at uh, at Brookvale, just seeing him just dominate a game like just time. And you know, a lot of the times we we're, we're talking about you know players, we're wanting you know all the coaches want good athletes and whatever, and, and not necessarily was he a great you know out of the mold athlete, but footballer, phenomenal, phenomenal. Mate, after your time over with the London Broncos, I believe you returned to the Newcastle Knights. You do a bit of recruitment and you coach the under-20s there? Yeah, the, there was a big shift in roster um, from 2007 to 2008. Uh, and I you know, I love watching video. Didn't have a family. Um, I was on my own, you know. Um, so I would travel a lot to Sydney every weekend and watch lots of footy. I uh, watched... Went to St Mary's one day and watched a couple of games out there, like SG Ball and, and Harold Matz. And then I drove to um, Cronulla one day and they had five grades on. They had Matz, Ball, Flag, Reggie's, and then NRL. And so I've watched seven live games on the on the one day. It's, You're a lunatic. That's exactly where I would want to be on a Saturday. Nowhere else. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I really enjoyed doing the grunt work and, and the legwork on that stuff, like going to watch players live and sort of putting my recommendations forward to, to those making the recruitment decisions. Um, did some coaching with the the attack with the NRL in, in 2008, 2009, and sort of, you know, we were moving on from Joey. Joey had retired in 2007, so it was a new, um, a new new team, a lot of new players and a new way of sort of playing. And that was that was a great challenge. Um, and then 2009, I was doing the attack for the NRL and, and also coaching the under-20. So that was my first opportunity as a as a head coach of a team. Um, so that was that was a great experience. Really, really enjoyable. Which uh, which blokes are in that under-20 side that are now playing first grade? Oh, I actually I found, a, um, I found the round one big league team um, – the week actually I'll, I'll get it hang on I'll just grab it off my phone it's, how good's um, finding an old big league and just losing two hours reading through the old team list and everything so good oh I mean but yeah off the top of my head there's um, like guys like Peter Matautia Ryan Stig um, even guys like Jonathan Ford who played two NRL games but he's still a professional player uh, playing for Toulouse right now that that's a that's a, a success. Um, Kevin, I just got it here. Uh, Kevin Nagamo is named in that. Mitchell Garbutt, Zane Tedavano, Con Mika. Uh, then the the Titans team like Jai Hitchcock, Kevin Gordon, Jordan Rankin, Cody Walker, Sasai uh, Vave, uh, Ben Ridge, Ben Ridge, great guys like that. There's you know Luke Page. It's cool to yeah reflect on you know teams from, from back then and seeing the success of, of kids just not just progress with their footy but also seeing them do good things in life. Um, that was a, yeah, it was, a, it was a great year, good good bunch of young kids. Can I ask you, mate, you said you watched a lot of like Harold Matts and SG Ball footy. Is there a standout for you that you saw as a kid and you just sort of went, fuck, this bloke's got it and he's gone on to deliver what you thought he could? Yeah, I mean, someone that I haven't had anything to do with um, is – I remember watching Lachlan Coote. It was actually on that day um, out at St. Mary's that I spoke of. That guy was just chasing bombs 
and catching them, like just jumping over the top of people to catch attacking bombs. And that is one of the hardest skills, I believe, in, in rugby league, like to, to run with the ball that's high and catch it going forward is much harder than when it's, when it's on its way to you. And seeing him do that, you know, multiple occasions and just great awareness of, general awareness of how to play and support play. And, you know, back then, I don't know if it was Harold Matz or or SG Ball, to be honest, but he probably looked like he might not be big enough to be an NRL player at that time. But obviously, you know, he worked hard on his body and became, you know, a super clever, super skilled player. Um, So that was, you know, I'd, I'd never seen him play until that day, sort of, Marking him down as a player, I wasn't sure if physically he was going to get there, but like footy-wise, man. Um, but seeing up close, like uh, Anthony Mundine and Nathan Brown and those guys playing, like even as a kid, Gordon Tallis, like those guys were <laughs> always going to make it. Um, seeing guys, seeing guys make it a bit later, like is also a good thing. Like Isaac Liu is a great example. Daniel Tupu, those guys that were like they were at other clubs not really thriving or succeeding playing under 20s, um, but stick at it for long enough. Like Isaac in 2012 played, I think he played pretty much every game at Newtown, just played a good solid game. And 2013, bang, NRL, and he's probably never played a reserve grade game since. Like there's, there's so many stories, man. I could, I could talk about those things for, forever. Tell me, mate, after your time at the Newcastle Knights, you can't. You arrive at the Roosters now. I, I believe Brian was there at the same time. Is that correct? Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was going into the fourth year of sort of working under the old man, and I was um and ahhing about whether whether it was the right thing to do. But the the lure of um, you know, some some superstar players, and particularly you know Mitchell Mitchell Pierce, like the chance to to sort of work with him doing the attack was um, yeah, it was too good to be true. Tell me, like, like obviously with Mitchell Pierce, we spoke about him earlier, but I imagine when you were there, that would have been the peak of him just copping shit left, right, and centre. You know, he he couldn't he couldn't tie shoelaces up without someone bagging him for how he did it, and the way he's come out of that, I imagine you know take footy aside, but as a bloke, the growth in him and the experience he's had, just incredible where he is now. Yeah, well, I like I, I for in two thousand and ten, he just played. He played really well. Like he played consistently really well, and and a lot of the stories, and rightly so. Like Toddy Carney had some huge games that year, and um, you know, won just dead set, won a few games for for the Roosters that year. But Mitchell Pearce was just so consistent, and and really the driving force behind performance, and and behind pl- you know playing in a different style that he that he was you know accustomed to in previous years. He. Uh, so I don't know if he copped a lot in 2010 because he he was playing consistently well in a team that was going well. I think it's been mostly, you know, most of the time where players cop a hard time, it's usually when, you know, individual and team performance aren't sort of going going, going the right way. Um, a couple of years, you know, 11 and 12, we didn't have good seasons. So, you know, halfbacks always wear a fair amount of the – if it's not the coach wearing the, the, uh, the flak, it's usually – Usually the halfbacks fault for not not coming up with something. Um, so it's it's good to see you know Junior survived um, a lot of that criticism and and negative publicity and you know some of that footy he played last year back to back games was um, you know among some of those purple patches like Jared Hayne or Joey Johns and that, those kind of guys have had in the past. 
Mate, we mentioned earlier about Jason Smith probably giving your dad some sleepless nights. I imagine Todd Carney, you know, you know, at the sort of footy he was playing, the energy would have been high. Being in the bright lights of Sydney for the first time as a player, like the, you know, and for that year, you know, everything went perfectly. But there must have been, you know, a couple of nervous moments here or there, wouldn't there? Yeah, I'd, like uh, I probably in my younger coaching, like I'm 39 now, but when I was 29 or 25, I probably spent too much time worrying about what players were up to away from footy. Um, and now, I, you know, my time as a, as a head coach at Bradford Bulls and that kind of stuff, like, I think as a coach, if you're worried about what's going, you know, you want to care for your players and try and help them the best you can. But if you spend too much time wondering what they're up to um, or stressing about that, it's going to detract from your actual ability to, to set the environment and the culture how you want it to, to go. You know, you've got to have a trusting mentality. Um, yeah, sure, some sometimes players take advantage of that or they don't reciprocate it a hundred percent, but they're, they're all young men trying to find their way in life. So like back then I probably used to wonder what was going on um, a lot, not, not specifically to any one player, but just in general, whether players were always dedicated towards their goals actually being hit, you know, seeing it through and really attacking their own personal goals. Um, Rugby league's still got a bit of a culture around sort of partying and and whatnot. It's a lot better, I think, than it than it used to be. A lot more players are, are dedicated towards you know rugby league really being that priority. But um, yeah, you can't spend too much time wondering, worrying about what it is. Like a lot of guys have had different upbringings and different experiences, which which makes them who they are today. But like in saying that, a lot of guys when they're twenty, by the time they're thirty. You know, they're, they're different characters and it's it's great to be part of that that journey, I guess. Mate, after your time at the Roosters, you um, head your way over to the Penrith Panthers. Tell me about your time spent over at Penrith. Yeah, that was interesting because at the end of the, you know, my dad got the, the sack from the Roosters and for a few days or a week or two there, I wasn't sure whether um, whether I was going to stay at the Roosters. And, and Trent Robinson, who I, you know, had spent – four years sharing an office with um he decided to to go a different way and i you know i respected that and understood that he wanted a, a fresh start and i wasn't part of that part of that plan um but you know some of the best times i've had in coaching were probably sharing an office with with robbo and rick stone when we we're at the nights and having some intense conversations about all things footy um and what we we're trying to do with our team and stuff like some of the best times but so yeah it was November or December, maybe I was just having a few texts with Garth Brennan, who actually worked with me um, when I was coaching Newcastle 20s. Garth is one of my assistants and always kept in contact and, and had a mutual respect for each other. And I think he just tossed up, oh, you, you should come and do a bit of coaching with me. And I was living at, at Coogee thinking, oh, I don't know if I'm driving to Penrith. It's um, a stretch. That's you know, it's, a, it's an hour and a half on a good day. And... Let it stew for a, for a week or two, and then I'm like, actually, sounds like a fucking good idea. Um, that I wasn't prepared to have a, a year out of footy, and, and some of the advice I got out um, from from a few mentors and stuff was just do some coaching, like whatever it is, whatever level it is. Don't worry if it's professional, paid for, whatever. Just do. Just if you want to be a coach, you got to be a coach. So that was a good opportunity for me to sort of work out whether, hey, is this really what I want to do? 
so driving to you know, and I did some laboring, like I did some multiple multiple different jobs and studied a few courses that year. Did some laboring, like I was moving pavers, bricks, you know, digging holes, just to to pay the bills and traveling to Penrith. Um, you know, get home at nine o'clock at night and beat the next day. And um, by the you know the first day at training, I said to Breno, oh, you know, what do you want me to do? And he's like, oh, you know, just get to know the kids today and, and get around and have a look. And I was like, whoa, who's that? who's that? Oh, like I knew who Bryce Cartwright was already, but then I'm like, who's that? And it was like Dallin Watanay's Lesniak, like picking balls up around his ankles, like Kieran Mosley, super clever dummy half, like Wonga Blake. I'm like, who's that guy? And and Wonga, like he couldn't make the, the 20s team at the start of the year, but had a hunger like to make it. Isaiah Yo, like another athletic looking kid, but I'm like, I said to Breno at the end of that, oh man, I'll, I'll be back. I'll see you on Wednesday. Like, I, you know, I was I was so excited about coaching that year, and there were like not only super talented kids that that Jimmy Jones and, and Matty Cameron had, had put together there, super talented kids, really respectful kids, but they just wanted to be footy players. You know, and they were, on a on a Monday they'd be waiting in the office for me to for me to get there and say, hey, can we watch some video? Um, yeah, it was it was fantastic, great, great, like reinvigorated my. And confirm my love of coaching and, and passion for developing young players. Mate, you mentioned Bryce Cartwright there. Obviously, you know, his career hasn't panned out as we expected, but like him as a young bloke, he was just he was just on another level. Like I have got a mate of mine that was he played Knights SG ball and um and he says that, you know, they used to be preparing for their game against Penrith up in Newcastle and they'd sit there and they'd all just watch the bus to see if Bryce Cartwright was playing you know, 18s, 20s, first grade, fucking whatever he wanted to play. And they just, and if they saw him get off the bus, they went, oh, sweet, we're, we're dusted by 30 here. Like he was just, he was a maniac when he was younger, wasn't he? Just such an incredible footballer. Oh, incredible. Absolutely incredible. Like, but, you know, people put a lot of that stuff down to, you know, he's natural or whatever, it's in the family. But, you know, I'm, I'm just presuming that Bryce probably had a, had a ball in his hand, you know, more than everyone else. Like he's kicked the ball, flicked past the ball, offloaded the ball more than anyone else as a kid. And that's just became who he was as a player. There was one, uh, there was one miserable winter night actually training that year where I was doing, doing some left feet right, like in the twenties guys training on a Wednesday night and Bryce gets the ball. I think he might've been playing in the halves that day. Like we had 25 different halves combinations that year. Uh, But he, he got the ball on the right side and the, it was a scenario like, you know, it might have been 12 all or whatever and they'll plan it out to, to see who could win, you know, in that kind of scenario-based situation. And he was under all sorts of pressure on the right foot going for a field goal. So he just rocked back onto the left foot and kicked a field goal from 35 or 40 out. And you're like, man, you know, aside from Cherry Evans, I can't remember, you know, Johnny Simon used to kick a few left-footed, I think. But not too many have like actually ever kicked one regularly, you know, kicked kicked him, be able to execute him regularly, even without any pressure or even any game scenario, or even in a training drill. Like not many can do that. Not many is like, and everyone just kind of went, oh yeah, Bryce does it. Yeah, Bryce does that all the time. It wasn't even wasn't even respected. It was just like, oh yeah, that, that's that's Bryce, you know, standard. <laughs> Mate, the way I remember Cartwright coming through was. You know, it was almost like you were watching a PlayStation game and you had Bryce Cartwright's all of his stats set to the absolute maximum and he was just taking names. Like, 
He yeah, and it, like that year that he did burst onto the scene at Penrith, I believe it was twenty sixteen, and some of the stuff he was doing, like I, I, I don't know if we're ever going to see that again from another footballer. He for the at the age he was and five eight locks second row, it didn't matter. He was producing the same highlights and doing the same things. Just unbelievable, wasn't he? Yeah, and you know it's still it's still in him. It's still in him. You know, like obviously, um, you know for whatever reason it it hasn't through in sort of consistent performances and whatnot, and he's playing in a team that, you know, have largely done it tough for the last couple of years. So uh, it's his awareness, you know, it, it's that sort of what we call a foot, footballer, you know, he's a footballer. He gets it. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's rare that you come across guys with that kind of awareness and, and skill set. Um, and when you do, it's kind of like, oh, you know, you respect every training session and, you know, you can't wait to get onto it. Mate, another bloke you mentioned who obviously gave you the opportunity at Penrith, Garth Brennan, um, he had his opportunity up at the Titans a few years ago and, you know, it obviously didn't go well. And I guess from people that haven't watched the Penrith, you know, juniors and their New South Wales Cup and all that, the teams he's coached, he probably looks like a bang average coach to them based on what they saw at the Titans. But, mate, the stuff he was doing at Penrith, those teams... It was just grand final after grand final after grand final. I sort of look at Garth Brennan and the Titans situation and go, you know, it was a job, but it wasn't the right job for him. I really hope he gets another gig sometime. Yeah, Breno's got got a lot of, like, he's very sound coach fundamentally. Um, he's got a lot of a lot of great attributes. Um, you know, he expects big things from his players, but he cares about them. Um, and, you know, I think it's really hard to judge coaches based on, their first job sometimes um, if they get a second or a third job and, and it doesn't go to plan then probably probably right but you know head coaching role I'm talking about there um, he had a lot of great players at Penrith but he also made them great teams you know as a lot of kids coming through he he, he got them to come through and be ready to play NRL whether translates into being an NRL head coach isn't always the case like but as far as you say he's certainly a, a great development coach um this you know he's not the only coach to to have troubles at the Titans you know that's that's the other thing and you know Justin Holbrook from all reports is a you know a top end coach and and character you know and and that club hasn't been able to turn you know they've had some good performances or whatnot but they're still struggling to win. So it's, I think it's really hard just to judge on the outcomes of performance. Um, and again, I think it comes back to that stuff we were talking about earlier, a little bit about what are the club expectations versus what are we capable of? And I, you know, I'm all for thinking big and aiming high and never, never concede. Also from an administration point of view, you need to know that you're, you're at base camp and you're ready to climb you know the last bit. If you're not, if you're nowhere near base camp, you know you, you, it's it's not realistic that you're going to get to the summit. You know, like at the end of the day, a premiership it isn't won in a six month season. It's won over the six years leading up to it. The guys you're bringing through, and I kind of feel like, and maybe I'm unfair on the Titans, but I feel like they're constantly trying to skip those little bits. Yeah, uh, yeah. I spent a little bit of time there, but probably not a you know not long enough. We were we were quite a Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Um, an old team there at one stage and they've, there's been a, a big transition. But whenever there's no consistency with coaching um, and administration, they've had multiple different um, CEOs and football managers and um, people in administration positions as well as different coaches. If there's no stability, it's very hard um, to to know. Now, sometimes you've got to keep changing until you get the right people in. You know, unless you're in an organisation, you never actually know. Like, but you know, I really hope the Titans do find their way through. And and from from a lot of reports, like Holbrook's probably the guy to to help the the footy side of things. Um, but it takes lots of things to align, not just the, the quality of the coach with the, the X's and O's or even the people skills. Um, there's lots of things in pro sport that are that are imperative, you know, to, towards everything needs to align in all aspects of the organisation in order to have, you know, to, to even see base camp. You mentioned that you spent some time yourself in the Titans system. Between the Titans and Penrith, you obviously returned back to New Zealand. Tell me about that experience. That was that was cool. Um, Matty Elliott had, had got the job over at the Warriors, and I shared an office with Matty for for a year at the Roosters, um, and and known Matty since I was a, a kid. He was playing uh, for the the Dragons in the early nineties. I think he he retired, and he ended up working um, for my dad at the Bradford Bulls. He was he actually went over to the Bulls before Dad did. Uh, dad finished the season at the Dragons in ninety five. Uh, Matty went over as assistant coach and, and got the ball rolling over there. So I'd known Matty for a long time and we'd had a lot of footy conversations and they had a heap of young, talented guys. Um, and I guess, you know, Matty knew I was good at coaching those guys that were young on their way to the NRL or even sort of fringe guys. You know, in my career, I guess a lot of – being the younger coach, I've always kind of gravitated towards the guys on the fringe or the young fellas um, because the other more senior – um, inexperience and, and age coaches sort of gravitate towards a lot of the um, the top end players that I saw in, a niche for me to to work with the, the guys on the fringe or the young guys aspiring. So the Warriors had a bunch of kids in the you know successful 20s teams year after year, but they they hadn't seen a lot of those kids progress into being consistent top end NRL players. Um, so Matty gave me a job and that was sort of the task at hand and it's kind of. Um, Kind of an interesting situation because I'd like on the grand final day in 2013 of the 20s, um, you know, it was a, the the Panthers end up beating the Warriors, and I was working for the for the Panthers, and I went over and, and shook all the hands of the the players. Um, it hadn't been announced that I was going to work for them, but I I just went and shook hands with everyone in the opposition because I knew that I'd be working, you know, with them the following year. And when I got there um, in November to start coaching. Some of those guys, like, they couldn't look at me. They were like, man, you broke my, you know, your team broke my heart. Like, um, so there was some, yeah, fantastic young players that were transitioning out of that 20s group into to men's footy. And the Warriors decided to take over the running of that uh, reserve grade from used previously being the Auckland Vulcans run by the Auckland Rugby League. Um, the Warriors took that over and, and provided a great platform and um, really professional service to those guys to be able to, to kick on and, and see some of those guys playing NRL, 
you know, pretty quickly and and still playing now is is pretty cool. Rowan, mate, obviously, you know, you watched though that you know the under twenties there for the six or seven years or however long it was going for. It was you know you you check the results every week and the Warriors are putting 60, 70, 80 on teams and you know they're consistently in the grand finals. They're the big teams in the finals in those comps and then you look at their reserve grade. You know, every time I switch on a Warriors reserve grade game. I see someone new that I go fuck. Who's that kid? Like what? What you know that you, you can just see special things out of them, and it just doesn't seem to correlate to them coming through at the Warriors into first grade and producing results. Like now that you know you're on the outside of the Warriors, looking in, you've had the experience within it. You know, do you have any comments on that sort of correlation? That for me, it just doesn't seem to be working. Yeah, again, like I said before, it's hard to know unless you're in there, um, but. It- like sort of having two experiences there 10 years apart when I was there with, with Ando and even before I was there with Daniel, like it was a very clear identity about how they were going to play. Um, you know, we've got size, footwork, skill, like kids over there grow up playing sevens, nines, rugby league, touch tag, everything. Like they, they just play more than we do here. Um, and those kids have got phenomenal skill sets uh, and that was, you know, that was harnessed in that regime. Um, bit, you know, had a poor 2004. Things change, new coaching, whatnot. Then Ivan, you know, came in and did a good job there and in a different sort of strategy and different structure. But pretty much since Ivan hasn't been there, it's, you know, the coaches have been turned over pretty regularly. So, again, that, that consistency and I would say – you know, it's a, and you still hear people talk about, you know, the Warriors are a big team. Like, in the NRL, they haven't been a big team for a long time. They've had two big wingers, and, you know, the one of the wingers that they replaced, you know, in Vatavai, they, they, ha- they have had some big players, but they are not a big team and haven't been for a long time. Um, they've, they've played a lot of very structured, rigid footy. You know, and people still reference their ad-lib freestyling sort of play but that actually hasn't existed for a long long time and that's not to say that that's the best way but I think every coach has to have a and and even beyond the coach like what's the identity what's the DNA of our club what are the people like what are the Warriors people like the Auckland people what do they want to see they don't want to see structured play they want to see local kids that are playing together with skill and footwork big hits, physical, and part of the problem in the last, you know, 10, 15 years that every other club is really entrenched in recruiting out of there. So it's a long time since they've actually had all of the best kids. There's a, there's so many kids in New Zealand that are physically equipped to be a footy player, but all the other clubs are, are grabbing them. So it's, it's not so much, you know, people sort of reference and go, oh, they've got a whole country to choose from not really like that anymore because the clubs are in there and I, I would say it's hard to know what the the identity of that club is anymore as far as the production on the field goes um it's a great club there's a lot of great people there um it's got a nice little history over a short period of you know period of time it's had some highs and lows um but you know some of those warriors footy in, in 2002 2003 was organized it wasn't made up there was a structure but it it certainly played to the strengths of the players um in that group where i feel through the last 10 years that 
you know, the club's really gone towards being really structured and rigid and trying to follow everyone else where they could have a unique sort of identity. That would be my take on it. Mate, I guess, you know, it comes back to what brand of footy they want to own. And, you know, my listeners are probably getting bored of this conversation because I had Clinton Torpy on six months ago. He said the exact same thing. New Zealand footballers, we're not structured. We're not the Melbourne Storm. Play what works for us. I then had Michael Witt on. He said the exact same thing. He said, you know, he showed up there and he wasn't this flamboyant ball player with flick passes and everything, but he could see the blokes around him. You know, that's the ability they had and they didn't play towards it. I then had Isaac John on last week and he said the exact same thing. He grew up with these guys, this incredible talent. Then they get there and they're forced into this structure. And, you know, mate, like I've only spoken to four people that have been involved with the Warriors. All four have said the exact same thing. It's just, it it confuses me a little bit. Yeah, it's, um, again, it's hard to know unless you're in there, but, you know, different ownership, different management, different coaching, you know, it's really hard to sustain or to create a, a DNA, an identity, a culture, an environment that that's heading somewhere um, when there's there's always that that turbulence. Um, you know, I I think I think Warriors, and I just think back to 2001, 2003 period where they they had great success. Now you can't you know you can't do that necessarily with their current roster because they don't have the same dynamic. Uh, you know, and even listening to, to Todd Payton speak last night, NRL 360, you know, talking about they need a big, you know, a big middle player. And they've needed a big middle player for like a long time. And they, they haven't been able to to um, develop one or develop multiples or, or to recruit one at this stage. So while they're highlighting that publicly, um, you know, everyone's aware of that now if, if they weren't already. Mate, there was, you know, a few weeks ago when they were looking for a coach, you know, they obviously still are looking for a coach, but when there was a lot of names being thrown up, you know, we talk about them going back to playing that brand of footy. There was two blokes that really stood out for me, and I'm sure you've coached against them, and I imagine it would have been a nightmare. The Walker brothers, what they did with the Ipswich boys, I just looked at that, and I I knew from day one, you know, this would be such an interesting fit. I don't know if it would work, but fuck me, it's worth a try, and I just knew the Warriors wouldn't go for it. What are your thoughts on the Walker brothers and their brand of footy they play? Um, I, I, I've got a lot of respect for um, for the for the Walker boys. Like we um, we've had some good battles here uh, over the last two years. We've played each other um, four times, and we got them we got them last year both times, and they got it they got me the, the year before um, both times. But they're both like really good hard battles, and I, I said to those guys straight after because they caught they caught quite a bit of criticism around the Queensland rugby league for, you know, everything's a short kickoff or a short dropout or, you know, they play a time based thing rather than uh, field posi- field position. They're, they're trying to keep the ball in their hands for longer than, so that's why they play sideways and generate that lateral, lateral footy. And I, I say to them, like, I love coaching against you guys because it's a different challenge. Like I see something significantly different where the majority of the other weeks, um, know it's not that much different from one team to another where they're a clearly different style and I enjoy that challenge and I respect those guys for doing things differently and and taking things on like I I get some uh, criticism and definitely um, some praise as well about how we play our footy we we pass the ball in a a different fashion to how the the Ipswich guys go about it Um, 
but I like to think that I do something different as well. And they like playing against, you know, it was a good battle, a good chat. Um, I don't know whether that style will work in the, in the NRL. And I'm not sure if it's sort of, it would be another shift away from the Warriors DNA of their earlier times, because it's not back to that. And it's not structured, rigid, um, you know, Melbourne storm of 10 years ago, kind of footy, which Melbourne aren't like that anymore either. Um, so to be another step in a different direction. Um, but what I do know about those guys is that they believe they they have a method, they believe in it, they can teach it, and they're they're strong about it and they're looking to evolve it. It's not been the same the whole time. Like I can see evolution from year to year. We, when they played us, actually, they didn't um, play as lateral. They played a lot more direct in our in our last game against them um, the back end of last year, which. You know, they were strategizing against what we were strategizing against. You know, it was it was a good um, it was a good battle, like from a coaching point of view. And yeah, I respect that they do things differently and and have a crack and they believe in it and they believe there's a different way. I like lot, lots of credit for that, mate. You speak about respecting, you know, the way that they coach in a different way. And you know, there's nothing that shits me more in rugby league than you know, blokes like yourself, the Walker brothers, and the reality is your dad for the last thirty years that step outside of those lines of playing chess and setting up for a block play. And, you know, you do something where you step slightly out of line, you try something different, everyone just wants to jump on your back for it. It must be frustrating. Uh, yeah, I've given up caring about what anyone else thinks, you know, a long time ago, outside of people that, you know, really, really know and can really help you. Like, you know, if you, if you wouldn't ring someone to ask them for their opinion, then... I wouldn't listen to it. You know, that's sort of something that I'll go by as much as I can. But, you know, you see great teams and they evolve, like the the Roosters and the Storm and those guys, they, they don't just do the same thing from week to week or, or season on season. They're always evolving where there's definitely some other teams that are they're just trying to mimic or they recruit a coach or some players from another club and think that they're going to bring that style. But, it, you know, you can't transport culture or environment um, – you can't transport DNA like you know footy DNA. It's just it's just different, and I love I love seeing you know teams do things differently and stretch the boundaries and, and challenge in, in different ways. And you know the new rules I guess are forcing coaches to change how they think or just to, to at least investigate whether their thoughts are still valid. Yeah, mate, I like I look at those Walker brothers and I just think, you know, like I understand it's a risk. I one hundred percent understand that. But like, the game has never moved more towards the way that they coach. And I, I don't understand if it was to go to a complete and utter tire fire, are the Warriors in a worse position in two years' time than what they are now? It's just I I, I think it's a risk that that they should be willing to take. Let's move to your time at the Titans. When did you arrive there? Uh twenty 2015 season, so it was the back end of 2014. I actually was due to stay at the Warriors after 2014. Like I, I'd signed a two-year deal. Um, I'd, they'd, they'd had a shifting coach, and Andrew McFadden was now the coach, and he was he was happy to to have me um, see through my contract. But I also had an offer um, from a Sydney club and from the Titans, um, and I was just about to get married. It was a week before I was getting married in Newcastle. And I said to my wife, well, my fiance at the time, like, what do, what do you want to do? Stay here, go to Sydney, go to the Gold Coast. And she's like, oh, you can't do this. We're getting married next week. What are you doing? Um, so I flew to Sydney for a day, had a meeting, came back. 
to think about it for a day or two and went, right, let's go to the Gold Coast. Um, the northern parts of New South Wales there is um, where my dad grew up and somewhere I had a close affinity to. Thought I'd sort of reconnect with with that area of the world and, uh, yeah, went and joined the Titans under under Neil Henry in 2015. So that was a turbulent time and also good test for the relationship and making sure that uh, we were both in this footy journey together. Mate, I imagine, you know, obviously on-field there would have been a heap of challenges, but obviously there off-field during that time, a heap of challenges as well. What did you learn from your time there? Yeah, maybe what not to do, some stuff. Um, you know, there was, yeah, there was some dif- issues with sort of play behaviour and, and even uh, just the finances of the club and, and whatnot. Um, I didn't fully understand or engage in a lot of that stuff. Like, I was I was there to coach. Um, I was there to develop young players and, and there to coach the, the defence. So, you know, I sort of relished the opportunity to, to get around Nathan Friend, who I'd spent some time with at the at the Warriors and, and Greg Bird and Dave Shillington and, like, really experienced guys like that and, and learn about the game and, you know, get feedback around my own coaching and, and that kind of stuff. So that was um, that was a great experience. Obviously, I had experienced coaching staff with, with Neil and, and Terry Madison there um, and experienced players. It was a real stretch Nate Miles and, and guys like that they really know their footy um, they they make you a better coach because you you got to perform mate after your time at the Titans you uh you grab your passport again and you head back over to England where did you land at Bradford um actually had a, had a call from somebody saying I think um I think the Bradford job's a good one for you I knew they'd had some you know sort of financial struggles and whatnot but um you know my dad my dad took that uh, that job on three years earlier um, when they tr- transitioned from uh, winter rugby league to summer rugby league and you know I had nothing but fond memories of um, bull mania was the, the phrase that they used it, it went from being you know a really dark dour foggy place at Odsal to they're playing in the middle of summer and it, there's music pumping and you know a good style of footy so I had great memories and, and we're looking to go back there and, and trying to create some more and get the club back on the map but yeah didn't quite go to plan. How did you uh, How did you land with the Norths Devils? How did it all come about? Well, yeah, the back end of that, you know, that Bradford experience when the club just sort of well and truly fell on its um, fell on its ass financially. Came home and, and just had to tread water for a little while in 2017, waiting for something to come up. And I actually had a um, an introduction to to Peter Nolan at the at the Broncos and just went and talked footy with him for a couple of hours uh, in. March or April of 2017 and just sort of making myself known and keen to I was really keen to get involved in the Queensland Rugby League or you know in the the ISC competition Um, I'd coached in New South Wales Cup with the Warriors I coached under 20s been an assistant in the NRL worked with SG Ball been to Super League been to Championship in England Um, so I feel like I've had a taste of a lot of the grades so I was keen to get to Queensland because it's something that I hadn't spent a lot of time with when I was at the Titans I spent a lot of time watching Tweed that was my sort of allocation of 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 players but I didn't really know the the landscape Um, so I feel much better for the the last couple of years of not just understanding you know Brisbane Rugby League but but Queensland Rugby League in general Um, so yeah I had a uh, someone, yeah, someone tipped me off that they were going to make a change as, as the coach went, and I, um, I reached out to Pete Nolan and said, you know, what do you, what do you think? And he said, yeah, definitely go for that one. And had a had a meeting with 
uh, club legend uh, Kevin Carmichael and Peter Fraser, the chairman, and and John John Rebo were um, in the interview panel, and we we had a good yarn, and and it wasn't too long after that that they offered me the job. Mate, I'm going to throw a hypothetical at you here. You know, you know, from speaking to you for the last hour or so, you've obviously been through a heap of systems, had a heap of experience, and it sounds to me like you're ready and raring to go for a first grade first grade coaching position. Let's say a hypothetical. You spoke about you understand Queensland Rugby League. Let's say um, the new Queensland team was to come in in 2021 and you were announced as the coach and they said to you, give us three names, three blokes that you want to build a club around for the next five or six years. Open checkbook. Give us three names to call. Who would they be? Really put you on the spot here, I know. but Yeah, it's it's like it's a really hard question to answer because um... – like I'm not a, I'm not a fan, you know. I'm not like, oh, I love that guy and how he plays and whatever. I'm always like, how does that guy think, or how does he, what's he like in the dressing room? How does he influence other people? Like, I, I think you obviously need, you know, a very big human uh, in the middle, and you need a, a great halfback. And to me, you know, fullback, those, those three, three things would be the, the key towards putting together a team. Um, I don't know, I'm trying to think on the run here, but like I feel, I feel that recruitment process. It's not so much like who are the best players, or you know, money's no option. Who's the best player? It's like who, who's the best fit? I like watching how Cherry Evans plays, and I think that guy could play till he's 35 or 38. Like he, he's one of those guys that, but he might not. Like I don't know him personally, um, but that kind of guy, I think you could do a lot with. Um, around your club and it comes down to how you want to play your footy started is a fantastic opportunity to really get that identity and, and really picking the players that are going to suit, suit your method. But I mean, those elite players that you're talking about, they suit every method. Like if you, if you got Mitchell Moses or, um, or Cherry Evans, probably off the top of my head would be two that you go for that. I think have got so much footy ahead of them as well. Um, the best footy of their career is, He's possibly still ahead of them. Um, you went for Tedesco or the next best fullback. I'm not not sure. He's he's just such a fantastic player. <laughs> Be hard to go past. But you'd have to think like, if we're going to make that investment in that player, how long is it going to get us? Like, about you know just signing for now and let's have a great year and work the rest out later. There has to be a, a succession plan and you know who's the next one coming after those superstars that you buy. That's that's equally as important a question as um, as the fan favourite of you know which which players do you want to buy. Like um, I'd be big on developing the next you know the underneath system as well, so that you know you're producing your own players. Where there's a lot of clubs not really focusing hard on that. Before that I let you coming through, yeah. Before I let you go, um, obviously you're the coach of the North Devils at the moment and, you know, I told you before that I coach a team myself under-16s with, you know, a couple of kids that are looking to make it in footy themselves. When a kid first shows up at the North Devils, you know, 18, he's fresh in the system, what are you looking for from him? What, what, what are the sort of personality traits? What are you in the training sessions, in their first few games, what are you looking for as a coach? Yeah, that's a, that's a really... Like it's a really deep question that could be answered um, a lot of different ways and, and really a lot of detail. Well, ideally, you're looking for guys that want to be coached and guys that love the game. Uh, they, if they love the game and want to be coached, you can't go far wrong. Um, but also probably understanding that 
not always going to see that straight away. Like sometimes the love of the game has been masked by previous experiences. Like we, we've had a few guys here in the last year or two. They're like, I just love footy again, you know, and then they've started playing better. So it's trying to get that environment right. Understanding that the kids aren't necessarily going to show that straight away. They might not know what competing looks like. If you love the game and want to be coached, well, you're going to compete well, but you just might need to be taught what does that look like? It doesn't mean just run hard, tackle hard. It means I've got to chase kicks or I've got to chase down people that make a break or I've got to dive on balls and get my head hurt. Like there's lots of things that can be taught, but if they come with that appetite for like I love footy, why do you play? Because I love it. You know, never forget that part. And do you want to get better? Are you here to get better? They're the two things that, you know, I, I try and foster and, if guys maybe aren't showing either of those character or behaviors, mindsets, then, you know, I talk to them about it and say, hey, what are you you here for? Like, you you love it? Because it's, you know, footy's a silly game to play unless you love it because it's it's brutal. It's physically so hard. Not many make, you know, make a living out of it because you love it and do it to get better. Mate, you mentioned, you know, one one, one thing you said then was that you want – players to want to be coached and obviously you know each generation which you know they change slightly are you finding the more modern players are they harder to coach are they easier to coach you know have you noticed any changes over your last 20 odd years of coaching in players I don't don't really look back on it and go oh you know what were guys like back then like you know when you're in it every day obviously there's there's evolution but it's it's so subtle from day to day or week to week that it's hard to sort of pinpoint well where did it where did it shift? I know current generation cop a lot of cop a lot of shit, but I think it comes down to about wanting to learn and be criticised and all that kind of stuff. But you know, I find players tell me they just want honesty. You know, maybe how that gets delivered is different now to maybe it was you know, no filter fifty years ago. You just said what you thought and didn't you know worry about the outcome or how it was received. Um, but if you if you're a coach and you're acting with the right intention of helping that player. You deliver it in a fashion that's, you know, humane and and somewhat caring. You know, it doesn't mean that everything is going to be rose petals and and pop puree. You know, like it's not all going to smell great or taste great or feel great. But um, you know, that's the, the nature of coaching is to help people get better. And you know, majority of majority of kids I come across, and I you know, I work with kids that are 16 all the way through to you know 30 year olds here that. They want honesty. They don't always, you know, they don't always love the answer. But they also, you know, in my my coaching sort of style, they hear a lot of positive honesty too. You know, in coaching, we generally hear, you know, I want to make, got to make them accountable and it's, you know, I'm going to be really honest with them. And often that's referred to as like being critical or from coming from the negative where players also like getting positive reinforcement about and I probably learned this lesson when I was at the Bronx London Broncos with um Nick Nick Bradley Galaloa who played at Manly and he actually spent a little bit of time at Parramatta and he, he told me a story actually when he went to Parramatta like I, I think my, my dad showed him a video of some highlights or clips or whatever that this is why you're here I love it that you do this um and I did that like I did that with uh, Dane Chisholm at, at Bradford and you know he had some issues you know some negative criticisms about his game or whatnot, but he was there because of the things he could do, not what he couldn't do. And I think as coaches, we've got to harness 
harness the good in people and why they're there to start with and and praise that and then the the criticism or the the self-improvement self-development stuff becomes much easier to to translate that i reckon mate it's been an absolute pleasure having you on you know your experience in rugby league is it's just so unique from your childhood to the different systems you've been in and you know, I'm confident that first grade coaching job, it's just around the corner. It can't be far away. And I wish you all the best in the future, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure to uh, to share an hour, an hour and a half, whatever it's been, to to talk footy with someone so knowledgeable and, and aware of, you know, the history of the game, but also what's going on in the present. So I appreciate the opportunity and I uh, look forward to, to listening to your podcast in the future. We'll have to uh, grab a beer once you're coaching a first grade side down in Sydney, mate. I look forward to it. Sounds good. Appreciate it. My shout. Without a doubt, mate. Without a fucking doubt. <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always dive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.